Uh, as you can tell uh, from the passages that were just read, uh, today uh, we're going to be talking about the discipline uh, of reading Scripture. And uh, as Pastor Hannah uh, shared last week, we've been kind of walking through in this series this different spiritual disciplines that God has given to us as a buffet uh, to provide aid to us and help and direction in the midst of wilderness times. And so the passage that we just heard read a moment ago, uh, particularly where you see Jesus and Satan in the garden, and they're having this kind of this battle, right? This conversation where Satan is tempting Jesus, and Jesus is responding. This is this wilderness time, and it was just after Jesus had just spent 40 days in this place of great distress, and Satan comes. And so this morning, uh, I want us to kind of begin to talk about uh, what are some of those tools. And so last week, Pastor Hannah uh, talked about fasting and that tool that's been given to us. And today, we're going to talk about Scripture. But I, I, I think that it would be foolish of me to not acknowledge the fact that probably for most of us in this room, when we think about Scripture, uh, we sort of like kind of cross our legs or, uh, or, or we sort of you know, make a fist <laughs> or we sh- kind of scratch our head because in many ways, for many of us in this community, Scripture has been used as a tool to oppress us. Or Scripture has been used as a tool to shame us. Or to instill guilt. Or to force us down a certain path or a certain way. And so I think, I just want to name that right away. That I am a part of that experience as well. I know that struggle. And so as we come to our text today, I think that it's important Um, that we just kind of talk through and acknowledge some of the ways that the Bible has been used to hurt us. Um, And I'm not going to give an exhaustive list, but I just want to name a few things um, for those of us maybe who who that wasn't our part of our experience. Maybe for us, we look at the Bible and we think, oh, no, this is a great book. Why would anyone ever blink their eyes at it? Um, What do you mean it's been used as a tool of of shame and oppression and hurt? Um, And so I just want to show you some ways that the Bible has been used uh, particularly in my life, the Bible and sexuality and the, the clobber verses, as they're called, um, to, to sort of stray someone in a certain direction with their sexuality is telling them that you, you, know, you, you, could, be, you could change uh, or you just need to live celibacy. Uh, oftentimes, we use, see this is even used in church discipline where people are they're, they're cut off and they're said, listen, if, if you don't repent or you don't stop in this lifestyle, then, then you're not welcomed in this family. Then I don't want to be your friend anymore. And, and I'm doing that so that you will feel the weight of your sin, repent, and return to the faith. Then there are some uh, where the Bible has been used through most of time to oppress women. Told that women are told they can't teach anyone but children and other women, but they can't teach a man. Where women are told that they can't lead men. They can lead, but if, if the situation leads towards them being able to lead a man, then, then that's a no-go. Think of a conversation I recently had with a friend from Bible college. We sat down and we were talking about sexuality and our biblical perspectives on that. And we have very opposing views. And uh, he was sharing with me about his wife and him. And I said, you know, the only reason I was able to come to an affirming view of homosexuality was because I came to the conclusion that I believe men and women were equal. And I grew up not thinking that. I thought that men and women were equal in, in, in their being and who they were but not in role and responsibility. God had given very distinct roles and responsibilities and that there are only certain things women could do and only certain things men could do. And because I came to the conclusion that these people were both equal, I could then believe, well, if I, whether I marry a man or marry a woman, I can accomplish the purpose of marriage, this beautiful image of, of selfless love 
as an image of Christ's love for the church. Because if we're equal, that doesn't matter then. We're both human beings. And so when I came to that conclusion, that helped me come to a different conclusion on sexuality. And he said, well, I don't believe that. I believe men and women are distinctly different. He said, someone in the relationship has to have the trump card when you two can't agree on something. And I think that that's why God has given the male as the head of the household. So he holds the trump card if you can't agree on something. And I said, how is that working for you, pal? <laughs> he said, great, my wife submits to me all the time. I said, how long have you been married? He said, a year. I said, let me know how that keeps going for you, right? But part of it also is that there is a mindset that, that some women believe this, right? This is why not every woman in America came out for the Women's March Movement, per se, right? Because there are some women that think, I'm not being oppressed. This is fine. This is the way God's natural order is. Um, this is the natural things, the way that things should be. And so they, they live into that. And, and they respect the fact that maybe their husband holds this hierarchical relationship over them. And that reality, that tension is difficult. Because I, I sort of pushed back and I asked the question, I said, well, let me ask you, why is it that someone needs to hold the trump card, and why is it that you think the male deserves to hold the trump card? Why is it that, would it not be healthier if you two learned to live into a compromise of conversation? But this is the reality that there are people who think this because of what? Scripture, in many ways. And then we have, obviously, uh, the very clear challenges in our country in regards to the Bible and people of color and how the Bible was used to enforce slavery and how in our very own Constitution, Article, chapter, Article 1, Section 2, uh, there was the belief that, uh, that, that, that uh, slaves were only three-fifths human. And this undercurred and underscored by the Bible and the belief that, that God, this is how God made things and this is the natural order. And then how about the Bible indigenous people or the Bible and divorced folks or mixed couples or children out of wedlock or the Bible and colonization stripping people of their culture and their heritage or the Bible and, the rege and rejection from family and friends if you don't believe the exact doctrine from our particular denomination the way that we have it written down in our bylaws. Right? The Bible is constantly often used as this tool that often for many of us can feel like it's a tool that has been used to hurt us and to harm us, not to help us, encourage us, and strengthen us. As a tool that divides us and not unites us. But I think that this morning we can come to the text and have a redeemed view of Scripture. And that's going to be my attempt this morning, is to help us have a more redeemed view of Scripture. And it's not a new view of Scripture. I believe it's the view that, that should have been, and in many, some traditions, has been all along. So here's three different ways that people view Scripture. Okay? Three different ways that people in Christian history view Scripture. The verse, first version is dictation theory. God dictates the exact words to the human authors. I mean, the exact words. And then there's the verbal plenary theory, which is the idea that every word is selected by God and it's just inserted into the minds of the authors. And then there's the third approach, which is the approach that I lean towards, and it's dynamic inspiration. Humans write based on their understanding and experiences of God. And their time in history, through their lens of the world, and through their idea of logic at that time. I don't believe uh, these other stances, uh, particularly for myself. Now, if you do, Guess what? Who am I to say that, you know, you're wrong? <laughs> I 
you and I are both made of, uh, of butt dust. Not butt dust, but dust. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we both are, have the Holy Spirit, and we're both made of the same thing, just trying to discern God's heart on these things, aren't we? That's what we're trying to do. We're both trying to live into who we believe God made us to be and what God's heart and intention is for the world. And so if you believe these other things, hey, I love you. You are welcomed in this place. Um, and I believe that God can use you and work through you just as much as he can me. Because I don't think that God's love and your, your, your welcomeness in this community or God's ability to use you is contingent upon what you believe. I believe it's based on who you are, who he's created you to be. And so I, I, I don't hold these particular views, particularly because I believe uh, that if we look at the Bible, we can begin to really clearly see that there's some scientific things they just didn't quite get right. Uh, one of those things, particularly right, like the earth is not, yeah, it's not flat, <laughs> it's round. And, and I believe there's, there's conversations we could have around historical inaccuracies that plenty of scholars have been able to find. We could go back and forth, could we not? But I don't think the Bible ever really attempted. That, that wasn't the Bible's purpose, uh, was to provide some type of scientific or historic statement or facts. That wasn't the Bible's purpose. That was not the Bible's purpose. Turn to the person next to you and say, that was not the Bible's purpose. <laughs> but if we come to it with that enlightenment, post-enlightenment you know, uh, mindset, then, then of course we're going to be really disappointed and upset when it doesn't line up with just exactly the way that we intended it. Well, I don't think that was the purpose. She said, well, what was the purpose of Scripture then? I think the purpose of Scripture was this. Scripture makes theological statements helping us understand God. Scripture does not make scientific or historical statements. So they well, define what the Bible is for me then. What do, what do you think the Bible is? I think it's this. I think it's a spiritual diary of the traditions, the experiences, and the reasoning of the ancestors of the Abrahamic faith. I'll say that again for you. I think it is a spiritual diary of the traditions, the experiences, and the reasoning of the ancestors of the Abrahamic faith. Now, that does not mean that I think, well, the Bible is just like every other book, and it's just an historical text, and, and you should just read it alongside, you know, the Constitution because they're equal. <laughs> and, and both are just as inspired. And I'm not necessarily saying that. I, I'm, I'm really not. I, I think that, 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 uh, that our particular view of this text is essential to realize and to, and to give respect and credit to those who've come before us even if they don't think exactly the way we think today. But to understand where they're coming from when they write these texts. I think this is really important to remember is that our faith has always been progressive. What I mean by that is that uh, our faith has never been one way for all of time from the beginning. It has always been changing because our faith has always been a conversation piece. Jewish, in Jewish tradition, which did you know that we come from Judaism? Sometimes we like to distance ourselves from that, don't we? But, but that, we, that is where we are grafted into, into what God was doing already amongst the Jews. We, we are a part of that. They are a part of us in that way. In the Jewish tradition, uh, it was very normal to have a conversation around what did you think that this particular writer or prophet thought? to have a conversation, and there would be different opinions and different thoughts, and they would debate around that. It was always a conversation. In, in the Bible, we see the conversation happening. Let me give you an instance, okay? In the Bible, we see just in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures particularly, we see a conversation piece happening, do we not? 
we see the Israelites thinking, oh my gosh, God promised us this land and now it's taken from us. And, and, and then he gives it back and then he takes it again. And, and why is this happening? And they're trying to make sense of, of why they can't seem to keep the land and they can't seem to propitiate the promises that God's given to them. And so they're wrestling with that. And so the only thing they can think is, well, we must have messed up. We must have done something wrong and God's punishing us. But then you see the book of Job, right? And Job says, Job, all this terrible stuff happens to Job, and his friends show up, and they're like, you did something wrong. That's why this is happening. And Job's like, shut up. That's not it. That can't be it. I rebuke that. And Job is in this dialogue and in this conversation of saying, that's not this situation. And then we look at Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes says, listen, you can't know. You can't make sense of it all. You don't always understand why things happen the way they are. You see, the Old Testament is this conversation piece of these different authors and writers throughout this span of time trying to make sense of human suffering, trying to make sense of life and where God is in the midst of it and why God is showing up to them, it seems, at times and why God seems to be absent at times. But it's a conversation piece. It never takes a hard and fast on any of those positions, but instead, it's all these different positions in conversation with each other. Do you see that? You see, what happens with a lot of our faith traditions is we just, like, end up landing in one camp. I'm a Job theologian on uh, the topic of human suffering. Or I'm a, I'm a retribution Israelite theology idea that, that God is just sort of punishing us if good things happen. I mean, if bad things happen, and, and he's blessing us if good things happen, and we do good things. And we, and, or, the, or you're the Ecclesiastes person, you're like, well, we just can't know. And we find ourselves in these different camps, but here's the beautiful part. Do you think if the writers were trying to articulate one particular point, they would have included all these different points? No, they're doing that because they want you to see the conversation that is happening amongst their tradition. And then as we move into Christianity, the conversation only continues to evolve because Jesus asks so many stinking questions without providing answers because I don't believe that Jesus believed that we could always understand everything in that moment. And that Jesus, when he comes, he speaks to the things that they're dealing with right then and there. And I get frustrated with Jesus sometimes because I'm like, well, why didn't you say anything about women? Why didn't, more, why didn't you say more about women? And why didn't you say something about homosexuality? I just need like one verse about homosexuality that you're okay with it. And why didn't you condemn slavery more? And, and, and why, why, why? And, and, and I have to, re to just kind of breathe for a moment. And realize that, that, that those really weren't questions they were fully grappling with them. And the little moments when Jesus does speak to these things, which are pretty progressive for his time. It was this beautiful invasion of pushing them to begin to think differently about something that they hadn't thought about before. But because we think that when the book ended, that that was done and the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking and guiding us into all truth and revealing things to us anymore and he had no more to teach us, well, then we think, well, why didn't God say something? God is saying something. God never shut up. God never stopped talking. God didn't just put his Holy Spirit in the apostles and then say, sorry for the rest of you. See you whenever I come back. And it's interesting to think that the, that, the, that the writings that we study and that we read, uh, that as they wrote these things in the, in the New Testament, think about the fact that they didn't even think they were going to be around for the rest of their life. That most of these writers thought that Jesus would come back before they died. 
they weren't even concerned with making things better, per se, in their comedian culture. They were looking forward to Jesus coming back and just taking care of it all. Because they were waiting for him to return. And again, he didn't give them a timeline, but they thought, well, he's got to come back soon. And so we see Jesus come, and he questions the way that systems are and the way that they believe things. But then we see something happen even more. Then he leaves, right? Then he leaves, and you have the apostles all trying to figure out, so what do you think Jesus meant when he said this? And we have this situation over here, and we're not really sure how to handle this. I wish Jesus would have said something about that. But, but based on what, what Jesus said, based on our tradition, based on our cultural experiences and those dynamics, based on what we know logically, what should we do to address this situation? And, and again, we have a conversation piece where, like, Peter and Paul, they can't even figure, like, okay, so should, so, so should, should Gentiles be circumcised or not? Can we eat these foods now? What, you know, who's welcome at the communion table? I mean, they're grappling with the questions. We literally get to watch them have the conversation amongst two religious apostle leaders who hold equal value. They have opposing views, the same Holy Spirit wrestling through, what is God's heart on this? And you know how they come to the conclusion? A vote. Not even like, I convinced you. It's a vote. Trump, sorry, I won. And then throughout all of church history, this is how decisions are made. We, we have these councils, and they vote, and they debate. Things aren't always as black and white. And then you have the Catholic Church form, and, the church, and you as a, as a Christian today, as a Protestant Christian perhaps, you only have your faith today because Christianity progressed past Catholicism. And somebody said, well, I don't think you guys got this right. I don't think it's just faith and works. I think, I think it's more than that. I think that it's just faith. I don't think you have to do anything to be saved. And, and, and Luther goes and breaks himself off from the Protestant church. And then Luther goes and starts his own thing. And Calvin's like, well, you know, Luther, I don't think you've got it right. And Luther's like, well, I don't care. You better just follow. And, and Calvin's like, well, screw that. I'm out of here. And they split again. And now we have 3,000 Christian denominations today because people say, well, I don't agree with you. Well, I'm going to go start my own church. Christianity has always been progressive. It has constantly been in change. It has constantly been a conversation piece. Why? Because we are all butt dust. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to remember that. Trying to discern what God's heart is. So as we bring a close to the message, I, I, I want to give us some useful tools that I believe will make Scripture, in light of everything I said, useful to us still, and not something that we try to distance ourselves from or we're scared of or we have a bad past with and so we just try to avoid it or we just let the pastor deal with it on Sunday, but something that we can invite ourselves in to be a part of. So here's, here's a tool uh, given from our United Methodist tradition of, of good old Wesley. It's called the quadrilateral, and he says that when we approach uh, any situation, we need to approach it through these four lenses, through the lens of Scripture. What was the situation in which the Scripture was written? Through the lens of tradition, through the lens of reason, and through the lens of experience. Now here's the thing. You're all going to lean towards one of these. Ready? Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Now each one of us lean more towards another. Okay? So for me, I lean more towards experience. What do I feel? What do I think? What's been true to what's going on in my life? Some of you will go, you'll be the science mind. You're the logical mind. Well, if I can't touch it, taste it, and feel it, 
done. And then some of you will lean more towards the tradition. Well, this is the way things always were, so this is what I'm going to sign up for. And some of you will lean towards the scripture. Well, that's what the Bible says. And it says it just like this, and I don't need to, to try to find out the particular context or anything. Just take it as it is. It's always been this way, and it should just be this way, and let's not debate it. Right? Those, but but here's, the, here's the beauty and the challenge of reading scripture. We must live into all four of those into attention in order to truly come to, I believe, what is the heart of God with every situation. Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. If we live into all these tools that God has given us as we discern his heart on things, I believe that we'll be in a much more balanced and healthier place. I also believe that we'll be able to have better conversations with people if, we don't, if our only tool isn't just the Bible, but it's also tradition and reason and experience. So this morning, if you're wrestling with indoctrination of a certain interpretation of Scripture that has either made you disinterested in Scripture or overwhelmed with shame, I want to encourage you this morning that there is a way to reframe how you view these sacred texts. And there is a way to find life and encouragement and wisdom and direction as we understand the growing pains and challenges and the questions that our ancestors wrestled through that we are still wrestling through today. And there is answers and there is hope that can be found in these texts. And so I ask you, as you read these texts moving forward, I always ask yourself this question. Where do I see myself in the text? When Joseph is betrayed by his loved ones, where do I see myself in the text? When Judas sells out Jesus, where do I see myself in the text? When Jonah sits under a tree and is pissed off because God is gracious to these people and uses him, where do I see myself in the text? Because if you can find yourself in the text, then you'll identify with our ancestors and the same wrestling and challenges and questions that they went through. And you'll find that maybe they found the answer or that maybe you'll find the answer through reading their story. But God meets us in the text, and he says, I invite you to the conversation. The word of God for the people of God.